Today's program was made possible by the generous prayer and support of the faithful friends and partners of this ministry. Visit our new website at Sheila.media. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this July 4th Independence Day 2018 edition. And remember, freedom isn't free. So let's remember to salute our veterans. Thank you so much for your service and God bless you. Ironically, who joins me today, I wrote a chapter in his book called The Erosion of Civil Liberties. How ironic is that? In his book, When Once We Were a Nation, two years ago, as a matter of fact, on this date. If you haven't picked that up, that's a great book, When Once We Were a Nation by Dr. Tom Horn. Tom Horn joins me today. Stay tuned at the end of the program. Why? Because boy, oh boy, I made a challenge, maybe you could call it, and I didn't know what I was in for. I want to talk about the challenge I put out with Mark Taylor on the July 1st show about finding churches, good solid churches that do spiritual warfare, healing, deliverance, the Great Commission. Oh boy, I want to talk to you about my response. And I've got some very good news for all of you that have been begging and pleading for me to bring the podcast back. There's really good news. Stick around at the end of the show. Well, I want to jump right into the program. He is a very good longtime friend of the show. He really is the transhumanism leader of the resistance. We're going to get into that. He's one of my favorite authors and he's one of my favorite people. Without further ado, it is the one, the only, Dr. Thomas Horn. Tom, welcome to the program, sir. It is a pleasure to have you back on. Hey, Sheila. Always great to be on with you. Well, Tom, where I want to start off, this uh, very interesting journalist, a very prestigious journal of religion and science, Zygon, I think it was Jonathan O'Donnell, I maybe have his name right, wrote a very interesting article. And according to this abstract article, it was to explore the anti-transhumanist gang of obstructionists. And who are they led by? One radical evangelical conspiracy, Tom Horn. Tom, why are they suddenly interested in Tom Horn's milieu? Yeah, well, uh, because they recognize, like we recognize, the ramifications of emerging technology and how many believe that this has the capacity to alter mankind, to take us into the next step in our so-called evolution, genetics, robotics, artificial intelligence, all those things that you and I have discussed in the past, and of course, Steve Quayle. And now uh, we're being compelled to speak out on the subject matter again, because I was named primarily by the University of London, as well as the peer-reviewed Zygon Journal of Religion and Science, as the leader of the uh, resistance. And in fact, if a person reads the featured piece that was written by uh, Professor Jonathan O'Donnell from the Department of Religion and Philosophy at the University of London, the title Secularizing Demons, Fundamentalist Navigations in Religion and Secularity, right? His goal was to explore, according to him, at a deeper level than his peers had, the anti-transhumanist apocalypticisms of the day, the central voice behind which was identified as yours truly. In fact, all through the article, if a person reads it, he consistently refers to Horn's milieu. <laughs> um, took me a while to even learn how to say the word. I was calling it all kinds of names, and being the oaky that I am, <laughs> you know, it had my own particular slang on it, too. Uh, but in that article, he also names Steve Quayle and a bunch of other uh, evangelical conspiracists as being part of the gang. And so, given that, Steve Quayle with Gen 6 and Skywatch TV, milieu just means a community. So, Horn's milieu is just this community of all these people that have gathered with me and Steve to discuss, you know, the ramifications of using everything from germline gene editing to permanently alter the future of the human race, to the brain initiative a la uh, the Obama administration, to brain-machine interfacing that is being actively pursued at DARPA. And these are all the kind of things we're going to be talking about at the upcoming conference in September, and I'm glad to hear you're going to be there. Hopefully we'll get a chance to visit while you are. But that's what we're going to be talking about. Of course, we've got some of the people who also participated in the award-winning documentary film Inhuman, especially Hugo de Garris, is going to be there and speaking as well. 
And so it's just, in fact, um, part of my presentation uh, at the conference is going to be on one of the things that I actually analyze in the milieu, and that is how not long ago this world-renowned AI expert, Dr. David Levy, uh, he gave a lecture to what they called all robot lovers at the Third International Congress on Love and Sex with Robots, right? Isn't it astonishing, yeah. the stuff that we're talking about that we couldn't have even imagined 50 years ago? But anyway, at that conference, he said something incredible, and I had to follow up on it to vet whether or not what he was saying was real or was true. And it is true, and the technology is here now, and it involves near-future human-robot offspring. We're talking about literal biological offspring that's um, actually possible now and will be possible as soon as artificial intelligence essentially becomes an I am that I am, as soon as we reach strong singularity or, or strong AI, which develops a kind of consciousness or a kind of soul. But his presentation that people can Google and read about if they want, it means exactly what it sounds like it means, and that is that one parent of the future will be a human, even if they're an enhanced one, they'll be some part human, and then the other parent is going to be wholly machine. And the technology under development at this very moment that will make that idea uh, reality is not sci-fi. Now, I go into different aspects of what I think this could mean for the future and how it ties into prophecy. And I'm sure that anybody listening to the program understands that if you're going to have a human baby traditionally, you, you need a female egg, has to be fertilized by male sperm. Prior to 1970s, that could only take place through sexual intercourse. Uh, then it was revolutionary when in vitro fertilization proved that babies could be conceived in a laboratory but it still required a human female egg and a human male sperm. Within the last few years, though, scientists have discovered that both the sperm and the egg can be created in a laboratory from skin cells. This is called uh, tissue nanotransfection. So you take mature adult cells, and they reprogram them to become immature, what they call pluripotent cells, cells that can turn into any other type of tissue. Now, uh, there's a laboratory that led in the last year to the discovery that eggs don't have to be fertilized at all. Eggs can actually be tricked into developing into embryos without fertilization. It's called parthenogenotes. And, of course, you're probably familiar with the term parthenogenesis, which yeah. essentially means virgin birth, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's another breakthrough that allows for the um, manipulation of human genomes even to the germline level that is part of this parthenogenotes study that allows now for two females or for two males to offer skin samples and then a child can be born entirely from a laboratory and entirely the offspring of two men or two women, and so on. So now, the, you know, why would we bring all this up at the, at the conference? Why do we bring it up in the book? It's because it raises all kinds of ethical and religious questions um, regarding these artificial embryos and same-sex, single-sex parenting. Is that connected back to technology that existed once before? You know, again, it all sounds mythological, but if you look at a lot of the creatures that are depicted in ancient mythology. Uh, many of them are all-female, capable of giving birth to more all-females, the same thing with males. And there are people like Dr. Michael Heiser and Derek Gilbert, who wrote his book, The Great Inception. And his next book, by the way, takes this even further. His next book is going to be called The Last Clash of the Titans. Uh, and it's all about the war that is prophesied in the Bible that leads to Armageddon and these unhuman, inhuman military entities that go to war with Jesus Christ. Even the Old Testament talks about how the Lord will go to war with all of the gods and he will be terrible unto them. So a lot of people don't realize that when you're talking about Armageddon and Gog, Magog, that's not talking about Russia. That's talking about the so-called travelers of ancient times, the ones that have the capacity to rise up from the underworld and go to war, and they're, that they're prepared to do that. Um, but so that I don't get off track, so I brought up this subject of how robots and humans of the near future are going to have the capacity to have true biological offspring. And all that's needed to make that 
uh, happen would be DNA coding that is written by a synthetic artificial intelligence. And, and then you integrate human DNA and robot DNA. So what Dr. David Levy, who's really the, probably the top expert in this field, and people can Google and read him talking about how in the technology exists now, and the only thing we're waiting on is strong artificial intelligence to give sentience to artificial minds. And then if those uh, you know, future robots that are getting married to humans, if they want to have true biological offspring, they'll create robot chromosomes, just computer DNA code, that will allow this offspring to have a personality that reflects the will or the intentions of the artificial robot mind. Remember that the first major milestone allowing robots or computer minds to write genetic coding and to give birth to synthetic life forms. This was actually accomplished in 2016 by Craig Venter. Remember when he uh, used a computer to write the synthetic code that gave birth to what they called Cynthia, which was really just um, always like some kind of a virus or something. But it was something that until then had never existed on the planet so far as we know. And there were professors of ethics out there at the time saying that he was, you know, he's playing God and creating things that could never have existed naturally. And what are the ramifications of that going to be? Of course, myself and others in the milieu, which, by the way, you're part of that too. I see you being ragged all the time over the... Uh, hack newspaper right-wing watch, <laughs> which is a badge of honor, by the way. We'll just keep giving them fuel. Probably, <laughs> since we've raised their name, they'll probably put this one over there, too. And, they, uh, and, and they're always taking everybody out of context. It's yes. just ridiculous. But in any case, we're, we're really talking, though, about the days of Noah and the very substance that Jesus connected to the arrival of Antichrist in Matthew 24, 37, when he said, as it was in the days of uh, uh, Noah. And what happened in the days of Noah, all flesh was corrupted. And that's what we're now talking about again. So one of the big questions that I deal with partly in the milieu, and which I will be dealing with at the Branson Conference this year, is going to be, is this kind of transhuman science uh, going to use this kind of technology to give birth to Antichrist and or his minions, his image, and is the technology being perfected now? Because, as I mentioned a moment ago, Craig Venter's breakthrough in 2016, a lot has developed since then, and science is marching towards, I think, a moment in which the legions of the underworld can be reincarnated again. And again, people listening to this program are going to say, well, this guy is a fruitcake. He is absolutely out of his mind. And yet, if you read the book, The Melu, I guarantee most people will come out of it with their jaws dropped, realizing that we are about to give birth to something. Children of the gods, call them what you want, infilled by synthetic spirits or possessed, literally the first fruits of revelation, entities born not in God's image and therefore his imager, but in the image of the Antichrist. And that's basically what it says. They have power to give life under the image of the beast. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned DARPA, Tom, the hellish candy shop for the military. You've got nanobots and sex bots and slaughter bots. That's bad enough. But get a hold of this, folks. What Tom just said, humans merging with machine, machines writing code mixed with human DNA, creating a biological offspring. Think about that for a minute. That's a whole lot like the non-sanctioned hybrid creations that God wiped out. And when you're creating these two-way neural pathways, Tom, think about that. You have ear gates and eye gates. It's bad enough, Tom, that Alexa's demonized. It comes on by itself and cackles in demonic gibberish. That's more than creepy folks. That's straight out of hell. And you know, they call us homo sapiens. We're more like merging into homo satanus. This is really the stuff of nightmares, Tom. Well, that's right. And uh, I mentioned a moment ago uh, tissue nanotransfection because that's really what's key to making this sci-fi concept of human-robot offspring reality. And then I forgot to mention what that uh, even means. So the bottom line is, 
it involves, imagine it this way, a human-robot couple of the future. You know, these sex bots are all over the place now. Some of them are very disgusting. They're creating children sex bots so pedophiles can rape them. Uh. They're trying to make that illegal through legislation here in the United States, but the different houses of ill repute with robots in places like Europe and other places of the world, they basically got waiting lines. And I read uh, one of the guys that owns one of these brothels, robot brothels, where he said, you can't believe the inhumanity when you watch what these people are doing with these uh, sex robots, you know, playing out their fantasies. But the intelligence among the robots is getting more and more. And once strong artificial intelligence comes online, which I believe it will within a decade, then you will have sentient robots that will have the potential to marry humans and produce human-robot biological offspring using AI-generated DNA sequencing that will be implanted into a human mother or other human biological matter, such as sperm and eggs from skin cells that I mentioned a little bit ago. And even though it sounds very complicated, it's actually, it's actually fairly simple. And the, the, the main technology to make it uh, happen is already here, and it's known as tissue nanotransfection, or TNT actually for short, which is kind of ironic to me. I think of TNT and I see flashes from my youth when Bugs Bunny and Daffy <laughs> Duck were blowing up entire cities, right? But uh, the motive for perfecting TNT technology was not related to creating human offspring. It was rather a technology that was developed where they can take the uh, mature skin cells of an individual and turn them into any other kind of tissue, including blood vessels or nerve cells, even entire organs. And the purpose of it was, of course, to maybe save the lives of car crash victims or injured soldiers, uh, to restore uh, brain function to people after having a stroke, that kind of thing. So it started out as kind of a one-touch healing nanochip technology for repairing injured or, or aid to body tissues, but now it's become the primary vehicle that will make the transference of robotic DNA in the human tissue a possibility. Now, how that would be so is pretty simple. Uh, if the injection delivered by TNT were to hold both human and robotic genetically designed code, then the offspring would result from a successful full gestational term that would quite literally be half human and half robot DNA. There's another doctor, Chandan Sen, S-E-N, who is a director at the Ohio State Center for Regenerative Medicine and Cell-Based Technology. And you can read some of the stuff that he talks about this same thing with TNT, if people want to Google that, about the true biological offspring of humans and robots uh, in the future. But there's another important point. Biblical language as regards image-bearing for both God and the anti-God, the antichrist, are actually the same in the Scripture. God made man in his image, which is the uh, Hebrew selim, and he breathed the breath of life into him. And then, of course, man became both God's image bearer and also a living soul. But Antichrist is also going to have an image. The Greek use of the term is icon, but it, it means uh, into which life will be breathed. And so you have the Hebrew and Greek words translated image in the Bible, that can mean a likeness, a statue, a representative, a resemblance. But obviously the image of God isn't a statue. Uh, it's humans who are his image bearer. The same thing is true of Antichrist. We're not talking about simulacrums. Just as mankind is the image bearer for God, Revelation 13 confirms that life, pneuma, the ancient Greek word for breath, spirit, or soul, is going to enter the image bearer of the beast. And so... You have this animating power source that is going to give life to the beast's image that's foreign to the breath that God blew into Adam. In other words, we're talking about anti-breath or anti-human offspring of Antichrist. And all of this, of course, harkens back to science that was employed by the Watchers when the Nephilim became the fit extensions for non-human, unclean spirits housed in unredeemable uh, giant clans. So this, I think, signifies our nearness to the fulfillment of Matthew 24:37, and could even fortify the image of the beast as kind of the first fruit of many, what, 
clone things, something, literally the impure fountainhead of those hordes that are described as encircling earth in the latter days, born of Antichrist or accompanying uh, Antichrist. And by the way, Antichrist himself could, could be a genetically modified man. So the, the, the sciences that are warned about in the milieu may actually directly be associated with the coming of the man of sin himself. Right. Well, that's really all where this is is really leading. And I've done a lot of historical studying of the 19th and 20th century. You look at selective human breeding known as eugenics, seeking to what? Improve overall human genetic qualities. Look what happened under Hitler under the banner of racial hygiene. Yeah, right. Forget weeding out inferior human bloodlines like the Lebensborn, the back braiding to the Nephilim. But Tom, when you have this transhumanist goal of using what we have now. We didn't have this kind of advanced technology back in Hitler's day. They would have salivated at the advanced biotech, the nanotech, the cybernetics, the mind interfacing. When you're creating these ubermen, these supermen, that really takes eugenics to a whole other level. Yeah, I mean, transhumanism is called the modern eugenics. And, and now, of course, I mean, if you could imagine what Hitler could have been able to do had he had the science that we have today, because with, you know, the eugenics of the uh, early 19th century, you're talking about selective breeding. Uh, and that's why, of course, Hitler selectively persecuted the Jewish race because he thought they were inferior and was trying to stamp them out, put them to death, create his new blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan super race, which ultimately, of course, he thought would lead to the Ubermensch, the Superman, which we, of course, would connect to the Nephilim of old days, where fallen angels came down in the days of Jared and involved themselves with human females and gave birth to uh, what Heiser calls the giant clans. And interestingly, this also there's something here that we go into in the book that's deeper than most people realize, and that is most evangelicals, when they think of the term original sin, they connect that to the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But in the Hebrew mind, when they, uh, at the time of Jesus as well, when you would speak to them of original sin, they didn't look to the Garden of Eden. They looked to what the Watchers did yeah. on Mount Hermon when they came down and corrupted the human genetics and the human bloodline. Now, fast forward to the time of Christ, and the Hebrews, which had what's called an Enochian worldview, a worldview based on the book of Enoch. And by the way, right now, we're giving away the expanded Apocrypha at skywatchtv.com that people will see a big ad uh, up on the top of the website. If they buy Donna Howell's latest book, The Handmaiden's Conspiracy, we're giving away some other books, but we're also giving away the gigantic volume, the Apocrypha, which is 17 books of the Apocrypha, including the Book of Enoch, Jubilees, and Jasher, which tell this ancient story on which even the disciples of Christ based their worldview. That's why, by the way, in the New Testament, Peter and Jude quote from the Book of Enoch, involving those angels that are bound in everlasting chains, which left their fixed habitation. They're talking about what the book of Enoch describes as these angels that came down to the earth. Now, at the time of Christ, what the disciples were looking for, I'll bring this back to our modern genetics revolution here in a moment, but what they were looking for at the time of Christ in a Messiah was that the Messiah would come and he would overturn what the watchers did at Mount Hermon. And if you read the New Testament, this is why you find Jesus doing very, very specific things to show himself as the Messiah that they were looking uh, toward arrival on earth. That this is why he goes to the base of Mount Hermon, where the Hebrews believed the gate to the underworld existed. And there, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And then what, what does he do? He goes up onto the top of Mount Hermon, and that's where he is gloriously transfigured into his heavenly body. Now, why would he do that? Because that's exactly where the watchers came down seeking to leave their heavenly bodies and to be incarnated in bodies of flesh. So he goes there intentionally to show how he is going to reverse this origin of sin, where mankind will have the promise of going from their fleshly bodies into a glorious body. Then what does he do next? He comes down off of Mount Hermon, 
and uh, he sends 70 disciples. Why does he send 70 specifically? Because that's the number of the fallen angels, the watchers that were given responsibility over the 70 nations of the earth, not counting Israel, which God kept for, uh, for himself. And they corrupted themselves and became worshipped on earth and brought sin onto the earth. So Jesus sends exactly 70, which the Hebrews would have understood. And he says, you go and wherever you put your foot down, this is holy ground. Wherever you preach my gospel, nothing will be able to stop you. He's literally, as Heiser says, poking a stick in the eye of the watchers. He is saying, I am here and I am coming to claim back the earth for uh, those on the earth, humanity for myself. And the disciples return, amazed, it says, and they say to him, even the demons are subject to us through thy name. And then what does he do? He goes straight to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he dies. Paul says later in the New Testament, if the princes of this world would have known what was going to happen next, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, because he goes directly down into the earth where these angels are bound, the spirits in prison, and he presents himself as the Messiah three days later. And three days is very important because in all of the Babylonian and Assyrian legends around the Watchers, they were called the Travelers. And it took them three days to come up from out of the earth. So he waits three days, then he comes up from out of the earth, having the keys to death, hell, and the grave, and shortly thereafter ascends into heaven with the promise that whoever believes in him is going to experience the same thing. All of those and more are very direct things that Jesus did in order to illustrate that he was the Messiah that could overturn this corruption of flesh, this degradation, this original sin that was brought to the earth by the watchers. Now, fast forward to the future. Now, I think we're living in the days where Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, it shall also be at the second coming of the Son of Man. So now here we are, and we're seeing the reinvention of science that has only existed once before in history, and it didn't end well. It ended with um, the watchers pleading through uh, Enoch to God to allow their giant offspring to be redeemed, and God said there is no redemption for them. And now we've entered into a period in time where the milieu and others are saying, look, we are about to repeat something that can change humanity at the germline level. This happened once before. Jesus prophesied that it would happen again. But, of course, with all of this ultimately is leading to the Battle of Armageddon, which both Derek Gilbert and Mike Kaiser have masterfully illustrated. And if you haven't interviewed them on this, uh, Sheila, I recommend that you do sometime. They illustrate in their works that Armageddon's not going to be fought there in that little area known as Megiddo, but rather Armageddon is going to be fought between these two mountains, the Mount Hermon and the Mount where the temple is today, God's holy place of assembly. And it's going to be once again the forces of Jesus Christ finally obliterating the forces that are going to come up from out of the earth that are part of this resurrection of the hordes of Antichrist and the Watchers. Uh, And that final conflict is going to be fought where blood will flow to a horse's bridle, and that will be the ultimate end of what the angels started there. But what we're seeing is how this is connected right now, I think, to what's going on in the genetics revolution, biotechnology, transhumanist aspirations, uh, and so on. And isn't it interesting, Sheila, that even the transhumanists couch this in religious language. Yeah. Uh, they're going to have immortality. They're going to become demigods, right? They couch it in the same kind of language that the deceiver first deceived mankind with, shall you not become as gods, right? Knowing good and evil. Isn't it interesting? And especially, Tom, these transhumanism, as you just said, you know, the degradation of sin. We are fundamentally flawed, yet they don't acknowledge the curse. They don't want to go to Jesus for salvation because this whole mechanized act of salvation, it's like, well, no, this is salvation on our terms. When you have a clever mix of Darwinian evolutionary futurism and part apothesis, part immortality, part theosophy, part science, you mash it all together saying, well, because Christ raised himself from the dead. Yeah, never mind about that. We can do that and even better. I mean, we'll use science to do that. That That is really amazing. They'll reject the one answer to the curse, Jesus finished work on the cross. Nothing to see here, right? 
Yeah, there's another thing. This whole idea about the the bridge between transhumanist philosophy, and of course there are even uh, Christian transhumanist organizations now, the belief that somehow we're going to become co-creators with God, and it's our responsibility to help man enter into the next evolution that God set into motion. Uh, There's a whole chapter in the book The Milieu in which I talk about how the Vatican now, and in in very uh, recent days, has began imagining a pro-transhumanist milieu of its own. And people can Google this and read about how uh, in November 2017, the Vatican hosted a pontifical council for culture, and they brought together this, uh, what they call a plenary assembly, that was discussing the future of humanity, new challenges to anthropology. Uh, And it included these top-level scientists and cardinals, uh, as well as bishops from around the world, that came together to deliberate on changing attitudes about using new and emerging fields of science, gene editing, robotics, artificial intelligence, and all of that, and other powerful technologies, to modify now what it means to be a human. And if you go, I've, and I've read the entire paper, where at the outset of the council they state that the general aim of the plenary is just to open up a dialogue about the future of humanity. And they do that, and then all these different topics were discussed, raised over what interdisciplinary approach uh, could help the church avoid what they called a technocratic paradigm that makes the methods and aims of science and technology the exclusive paradigm that shapes the lives of individuals and so on. I got the paper in front of me and I'm just looking at some of the words. But anyway, anybody can Google and read the Vatican's discussion. But what they'll find is it very quickly took on this very pro-transhumanist approach regarding the compatibility between the aspirations of transhumanism and then the church's uh, traditional Catholic Christian theology. And what they say is that because a universally accepted model for creation, for nature, is not agreed on any longer, not by churchmen, not by scientists, that the um, a vision of mankind being redesigned through applied sciences is one that the church is going to have to address. And so that's what the plenary was all about, raising all these questions involving speciation and uh, whether modified humans would be even considered to be homo sapiens. And so they talk about all these inadequacies, inequalities, things that could develop between near-future enhanced and unenhanced people, entities. And one of the big questions, of course, is mankind 2.0 even going to have a soul? And so on. So once again, the question that's raised in the book of Enoch, when the watchers say to God, can you please redeem our giant offspring? And God says, no, there is no redemption for them. Uh, And uh, guys like Steve Quayle will explain that when these giants were killed, you know, their spirits became the demons that are upon the earth today that wonder about. And the reason they want to uh, possess people is because those spirits originally were housed in fleshly form. And so somehow they're uncomfortable or whatever being outside of those bodies. One of the things that was of of huge interest to me with the uh, Vatican's plenary and that I write about in the book The Milieu and quote some of their uh, work was what was the guiding world view that was steering the Vatican's attendees on all these heady matters. And what came to light during the assembly was they unanimously approved a petition to be sent to Pope Francis requesting that the amonitums of a warning that's issued by the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith in Catholicism, a warning that was issued against the teachings of uh, Pierre Telhard de Chardin, and they asked that that be removed. And then currently now there's an appeal to the Pope from the Council, and it discusses how the what they call the seminal thoughts of the Jesuit Father Pierre Telhard de Chardin illustrated that he was an eminent spiritual thinker and that it influenced the majority considerations throughout the plenary that was discussing the future of humanity and enhanced mankind and the transhumanist philosophies and so on. So what you learn by reading all of their paperwork is that Chardin 
uh, you know, who believed that all of mankind is moving towards what he called the Omega Point. I'm sure you're familiar with all of this. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, he believed in Darwinian evolution and that someday the day would come in which we would have the application of human-enhancing technologies that would allow us to move to our ultimate state. And eventually, of course, we're all going to become a giant part of a galactic hive, um, you know, something like the Borg or something, if you will. Now, I bring all this up because most Protestant and evangelical leaders remain uninformed on the goals of transhumanism and how Chardin was actually the original transhumanist, according to even a lot of their own transhumanist papers, doctrines, and how the plenary combined the teachings of Chardin with what they called their, I forget what the term is, but it means Christian eschatology, the study of end times events, the ultimate destiny of humanity, and the plenary, their recommendations back to the current Pope Francis, combines human-modifying technology and the transhuman worldview of Chardin to define what they believe the future of humanity is going to become. So it's very eyebrow-raising, especially when you understand that they want the warning, the monotone, against Chardin to be removed by this pope. And the majority of the people in the plenary wrote a paper, and all of them as signatories, recommending that, that, uh, that the pope remove the warnings against his teaching and embrace the idea that indeed we are now entering into a period in time in which mankind is going to become the product of Chardin's Omega Point. That's stunning because Chardin wrote The Divine Milu back in 1960. And in that book, he makes a really interesting statement. He says, all the communions of a lifetime are but one communion. And of course, this was parroted by Pope Benedict XVI, Ratzinger, others, the spirit of the liturgy, which contains some of the themes about this turning the earth into a living host, this hive. You know, it's frightening that you have top members of the Catholic Church, which is evident in this plenary, throwing their weight behind this movement of not just modifying what it means to be man, but modifying salvation itself. That right there is stunning. It really is, and, and you know, you mentioned uh, Pope Benedict, uh, and a lot of Roman Catholics don't know that uh, Emeritus Pope Benedict was a Chardinian mystic of the highest order. Yeah. His own book, Credo for Today, What Christians Believe, which was published in 2009, uh, he follows the lead of uh, Chardin and states unequivocally that a belief in creationism, the way that evangelicals might think of that, is um, baloney to put it kindly, and that it actually contradicts the idea of evolution and is untenable. Yeah, and by the way, since then, Pope Francis has also spoken favorably of uh, Chardin. So so that part I found to be quite interesting, uh, disturbing, actually, that you have leaders of what is considered to be the most powerful Christian organization in the world meeting in a plenary to discuss the future of enhanced humanity and endorsing the likes of Chardin. And, the, and of course, we've read more and more about this anyway over the last few years. Many of the leading thinkers for the Vatican endorsing Darwinian evolution. It's really become an accepted norm. And so then, if you think of it that way, it makes a great deal of sense that uh, we, would, we would imagine using technology now, not just for therapeutic purposes. And by the way, I don't have a problem with a lot that falls kind of under the big umbrella of transhumanism if we're talking about being able to give people that have lost limbs a prosthetic leg or a, you know, a high-tech prosthetic arm or high-tech wheelchairs or other kinds of things that could help people in that way. I, uh, I laugh now and I tell my family I've become a transhumanist because I had a quickly developing cataract in one of my eyes this last year. And when I went in to get a lens replacement, they said, uh, they said, now we have these new lens, lenses that can actually re- return your eyesight to, you know, better than 2020 vision. <laughs> so I got one of these new lenses and I got like 1620, actually better than perfect eyesight now wow. uh, in that eye and don't have to wear glasses after I wore glasses for 20 some plus years. So there's a lot in technology now that I think is beneficial and I think does fit within the Christian ethic 
of treatment and therapy and helping people and managing diseases and all of those other things. I mean, Christianity built all of the great institutes of healing and hospitals and research laboratories because that always was part of our belief system. Jesus healed and we were commanded to be healers. But there is a vast difference between, you know, uh, giving somebody a a high-tech arm that might have lost one in the battlefield, a robotic arm. There's a vast difference between that and saying we can rewrite your genetic makeup and turn you into a salamander so you can regrow your own (laughs) arm, right? There's a lot of difference between the two. Well, exactly. But we're not just talking about editing genes here. We're talking about editing genetic coding. And yet the church is staggeringly silent on all this. It is absolutely crickets. And I'll never forget you said on a show with David Langford and Steve Quell, it was on one of my shows, you said this, and I'll never forget it. If your grandpa was ever brought back into today's society, he would run out of the church screaming with probably all the doctrines of devils and the demons. So you combine a barely recognizable church today with no one will stand up and speak out against this stuff and the political correctness. But now we're talking about the dawn of a new religion, putting salvation in our own hands. That whole coalescence is incredibly frightening. And Tom, as a pastor of over 25 years, that's got to absolutely floor you. It all floors me, and it's why I can't seem to put it down. I mean, I, by the way, the reason why the professor there at the University of London uh, listed me, you know, as the leader of the pack was because I was probably the first one that really began speaking out on this issue years ago. And then yeah. I had people like top leading transhumanists like James Hughes and people like that that challenged me to debate them to come on their syndicated radio programs and TV programs and stuff, and I did. Now, there were people like my good friend, Dr. Chuck Misler, who passed away yeah. recently. Uh, he, too, was out there talking about this issue. But because the transhumanists targeted me, then that kind of pulled me over, I think, into a lot of their camps because I was talking about the dangers of bioenhanced humans and all, you know, these unique cognitive abilities that they're uh, celebrating, uh, brain-machine interfacing. It was Dr. Misler uh, who pointed out at the uh, Strategic Perspectives Conference a few years ago. I spoke there, and he spoke there, and we both spoke on the entering into the hybrid age. But it was he that was saying, you know, he was explaining how brain-machine interfacing is going to work and how in the future you'll have artificial uh, intelligence that will be interacting with human brains. We'll wear these uh, helmets on our head. If you're in the military, you'll be able to control objects by thought alone and all that. But he was making the point that, and when you started this program, you mentioned the ear gate, the eye gate. He was making the point that whenever you interface your brain in the future with these artificial intelligence systems, this is not a one-way portal. You've actually created a two-way pathway uh, of interacting with an AI. And what if these artificial systems become possessed? Uh, what if there's an invisible entity that's somehow operating, and, and by the way, I think that's more than likely a large part of the new book, The Milieu, deals with this idea that, that strong artificial intelligence was the book of Revelation's way of saying, and they had power to give life yeah. unto the image of the beast. That's literally talking about a synthetic creation that comes to life, that becomes an I am that I am. And that's, if, whether it's Kurzweil or whoever it is, when they talk about strong artificial intelligence, they talk about that moment when this AI is going to come online, a consciousness. And Hugo de Garris, who's going to be speaking at our conference in uh, Branson, uh, he basically wrote the book on this. He actually wrote the book called The Artelect War, uh, in which he believes that the moment strong AI comes online, it's going to lead to an Armageddon-like battle, a gigadeth, in which literally billions of people are going to perish as a result of this strong artificial intelligence. And Hugo is qualified to talk about this. He, he led China's artificial brain development center at Zion University for 20 plus years. He knows what he's talking about, and he's going to be speaking at our conference. Now, Hugo started out as an avowed atheist. But we've been interacting with him uh, over the last decade, off and on. In fact, he's in my documentary film, Inhuman. And uh, now he has moved from there over to now calling himself an agnostic, (laughs) meaning that he can't claim that there is no God. And in fact, he wrote an exceptional paper a while back in which he said that scientists, 
who fail to recognize an order in the universe, intelligent design, he said, are lying through their teeth that no scientist with any kind of honest integrity can deny that the universe is made up of the signatures of intelligent design. So we don't know. And now Hugo has agreed to speak at our conference, which he knows is not only a Christian conference, but it's a very conservative one, and that we're going to be talking about uh, the many issues, you know, that are before us now in the transhuman hybrid age era. Well, you guys are starting to rub off on him, and let's just pray that he goes from atheist to agnostic to born-again Christian. We'll be praying for that. Well, let's just pray for him. Yeah, amen. Well, Tom, I've read your entire book, Neil Yu. There is nothing like it. This has so many amazing contributors. This is a must-read book, period. The book is The Milieu, the subtitle, Welcome to the Transhuman Resistance. Contributors Frederick Meekins, Carl Teichrub, Derek and Sharon Gilbert, Nita Horn, Josh Peck, Westfall, Paul McGuire, and Troy Anderson. Such an incredible book. And I think my favorite chapters, really, well, it's a toss-up of Chapter 7, AI, Image of the Beast. All the chapters are so good, but 12 was amazing. The hell scenario will be nothing to grin about. This is so good. The transhumanism new face of spiritual warfare is chapter 13. This entire book is incredible. And it's actually not even a hard read. Like normally your books are like 900 pages or something. Folks, this is a must have book. Tom, you are the king of incredible book deals. You've got this milieu package on. Talk about how they can get this must have book right now because it is available. Yeah, well, if they go to skywatchtv.com, they'll find ads on the front page, or better yet, go to skywatchtvstore.com, click on New Arrivals, and they'll see the different deals that we're offering there right now, including the milieu and the package that we're giving away with it. We're giving away over $100,000 in merchandise in the next few weeks. It's all a first-come, first-served kind of thing. It's when we run out, we're out. But the milieu promo, there's a couple of other documentary films, including uh, Inhuman, the award-winning documentary, that comes with it free. Jeremiah Films has a brand-new film called The Last Religion, which is on transhumanism. That's also free. They're throwing in preparedness items that it's you know per order it's probably a couple of hundred dollars of free merchandise people can get they can set it aside and give it away as gifts at christmas or whatever uh and uh when we run out of all that product then that'll be the end of that but right now that's the promo we're offering with the milieu there's also uh, a promo going on over there with the book saboteurs which you and I did a program on a few months ago. And then, uh, again, we're giving away the Apocrypha, and they'll find that uh, ad in there. This is 17 ancient books that were several of which were actually taught in the first century church for 700 years until they were expunged from the canon of literature in the 1500s. And so basically we're just making the same books available again that the disciples of Christ would have had access to and we know did read because they quote them in the Bible. So that's what we're doing right now. Uh, And thanks, Sheila, for having me back on your program and giving me the opportunity to let people know about the milieu. Well, Tom, it was a pleasure today for us to not only have you on, but we really look forward to seeing you out there in Branson in September. I've got that information linked below. Folks, get the live streaming if you're unable to attend. Tom, I think I really do speak on behalf of all my listeners today when I tell you we are such big fans of yours. You really have been the progenitor, the leader of this milieu. So it's really timely is this topic. Thank you so much for fighting the good fight, taking on all the incredibly important issues. We appreciate you. We love you. And we're just so blessed by having you come on the program today. Thank you, Tom. Well, all of those words right back at you, Sheila. You're a very important voice, and I'm glad to be your friend and glad to get to do programming like this with you, and I hope people are supporting your ministry. Thanks so much, Tom. Folks, that was Dr. Tom Horn. The book is 
the milieu. Welcome to the Transhuman Resistance. In the description below, you'll see the direct link. Get a copy of this book today. And I'm really excited because it pairs really nicely with a coming book this fall, Technogeddon, The Coming Human Extinction. I'm really hoping to have that book finished by the time Branson comes around. So September 15th, hopefully it'll be hot off the press. I'm going to take some time off in July to finish that. Boyle boy, you want to read that one as well. And you want to really get copies of these for some of your Christian friends, your your pastor. Get him a copy of this. You know, a lot of people ask me, what can I do? What can I do? It's just little old me. I don't have a platform. Listen, you can give out copies of The Milieu. That is a tremendously good book to get for, like, say, your pastor. (laughs) I don't think people have any clue how tough it is to write a book and put all your research in it, all the footnotes, the time it takes to put together these kind of books, I'm telling you. And then, like Tom said, to be, you know, written off as some kind of tinfoil hat nutcase kook. And then, you know, of course, we've got right wing watches and the ilk to contend with out there. So that's one thing that people can do is they can support our efforts by getting the information out. When you hear these kind of YouTube videos, Share the YouTube videos all over your social media. You never know who just might get the information, and that's really important. And I'm really looking forward to seeing everyone out in Branson. I've got three amazing guests on this week. Number one coming out of the shoot tomorrow is William Schnebulin, and I think I'm probably butchering his name. I've been really wanting to get him on the program for a long time. What an incredible story. And then on Thursday, it is the one, the only. Well, we talked about him on the show today. Steve Quayle joins me and Friday I'm joined by my friend. A lot of people actually emailed me about this guy. My friend was arrested in Canada for preaching the gospel and he's got limited time, but he's going to join me for about a half an hour or so. Very quickly, a reminder that I am back on the podcast, much to the absolute landslide of listeners begging and pleading for that to go back on. So what that essentially looks like is it is going to filter to iTunes. All the shows are now uploaded officially to the podcast. So every show from February 1st, right till this episode right now, they're all on the podcast. So some of you have missed a lot of shows over the six months. If you've only been listening on podcast, I guess you have some binge listening to do. And lastly, on the Mark Taylor show that I did July 1st, and if you haven't listened to that, do so. I asked the audience, and little did I know that well, a couple days later, it would have 80,000 views. You can imagine the absolute hundreds and hundreds, I think close to a 1000 emails from people regarding churches that actually do spiritual warfare. We're talking like Mark 16 kind of ministry. I was really shocked with the number of replies to that question. I, I threw it out there. I said something like, I'm compiling a list of great churches. I could have never imagined what I was in for when I posed that question. So I'll tell Tell you how you can help me compile this list of churches. Go to the Mark Taylor YouTube video that we did July 1st. Make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel. And I've opened the comments. So I'm asking people right now, jump over there. And if you do belong to one of those churches, write it in the feed. And I'm going to get someone to help me compile all the information and put it in some semblance of order. Post your church in the comments and we're going to be compiling all that information and we'll be getting it out in a newsletter that's up and coming in August. So make sure that you are subscribed to my e-newsletter and stay in the loop. Simply go over there to www.sheila.media. Happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. We love our veterans. God bless you. We'll see you real soon. Good night and God bless.